good morning. I am so grateful this morning for the, for the beginning that was made in chapter four last week as Pastor Mark with, with his characteristic clarity and, uh, and just, just simple elegance spelled out this great truth that the ministry of the gospel belongs to every child of God. The uh, occupational hazard, perhaps, or, or cultural hazard. For those of us who've, who've been around church for a long time, and I know that's not everybody, but, but a lot of us have been around church for a number of years, and, and uh, we, can, we can kind of kind of get drawn in by the gravitational pull of the idea that, that ministry is, is the responsibility of, of, well, folks who go to work at church facilities. And while there are, there are duties, I suppose, associated with um, working at church, for which duties I'm, I'm grateful. It's not a, not a bad way to earn a living. Um, the ministry belongs to all of us. The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ belongs to every child of God, um, which is, is an amazing and astonishing thing if you think about it. To think that the living God, the most important being immeasurably, the world's, the universe's most important being, doing creation's most important activity the most important thing going on in this universe is the living God drawing a people to himself. That is, that is the universe's number one priority in terms of an activity. God is drawing a people to himself. And to think that the, the means whereby he is accomplishing that the mechanism that he has chosen is the voices of his people. He has, remember, all of the options that his omnipotence gives him. There's no limit to what he can do and how he may choose to do it. To think that his, his ideas spring from an imagination that is omniscient. There is no limit to what he knows. But he has chosen to pursue that which he is most passionately pursuing, a people for himself. He's chosen to do that through us paragraph that I'll be addressing this morning begins in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, and it begins with this word picture. We have this treasure, meaning the gospel of Christ, in jars of clay, clay pots, meaning, well, us. And as I, as I encountered that phrase in this passage this morning, this idea of, of treasure in clay pots. It reminded me of a place I have, been, I have been blessed to visit, and I pray one day I'll get a chance to perhaps visit it again. The, uh, the picture I want to show you on the screen 
is a, a museum. If you ever get a chance to visit this museum, this museum is in Jerusalem. And it houses a number of things. If you ever get a chance to enter this museum, this is the interior of it, among the various displays, you will see. Well, as you, as you go in, you'll see that this, this museum is not merely a museum. As you pass through the doors, you'll, you'll note, if you pay attention, that they are like blast doors, really thick vault doors. This museum is designed to survive being bombed. It's designed that you can't get into it if you got no business being in there. So it's a museum, but it's also a vault, and it's also a bunker. And among the things there, the central artifact that it is most designed to display. I would argue that this object is the most valuable object on earth. Many archeologists would agree. Biblical archeologists would absolutely agree. And I say that having, I've, I've been in some museums, I've seen some stuff. But I would offer that the single most valuable treasure on earth, the central display in this museum, which is known as the Shrine of the Book, is an intact copy of the prophet Isaiah. Of course handwritten, of course in Hebrew, written and, and laid down hundreds of years before the time of Christ. And that 23, 2400-year-old Isaiah, it's known as the Great Isaiah Scroll. And I would hold that there's not an object on earth that is more valuable because it shows us that the text of Isaiah that we have, translated to English in the Bible you have with you or on the Bible app you have, that that text is as old and as flawlessly preserved as your Bible publisher would say that it is. Now, how did it get there? How does the great Isaiah scroll come to live in this marvelous museum bunker vault? Well, that story begins in 1947. In 1947, a, a Bedouin shepherd watching over his, his flocks in, the, in the, the, the rocky, somewhat dry wilderness area near the northwestern coast of the Dead Sea, far east of Jerusalem, but northwest of the Dead Sea, there are cliff faces there. And in those cliff faces, there are a number of caves. And you can clamber up to the mouths of those caves if you're truly curious. And this shepherd one day became truly curious. And <clears throat> as he was standing in the mouth of one of those several caves, just out of idle curiosity, not meaning anything by it, just to kind of see, I wonder how deep this goes. It's very dark as he peered back into the cave. He stood in the mouth of that cave and he picked up a rock as just a curiosity thing. And he threw that rock down into that cave. And back in there when it hit, he heard the sound 
of a breaking clay pot. They look like, like this, this picture I want to show you, these, this collection of clay pots. And in these clay pots, first discovered in 1947, several discoveries in the years after in these similar caves, were what we know today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. A find of literally, they are beyond value. They are literally priceless. If you tried to place a value on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and particularly on the Isaiah Scroll, the answer is you can't have it. There's no amount of money on earth that you could purchase it. The Israelis acknowledge it as their most highly treasured artifact. And to think that for more than 2000 for centuries more than 2000 years it was rolled up in the back of a cave in a clay pot. Treasure in a clay pot. And here we are, you and I holding in the clay pot that is your physical being the ministry and message of salvation to be found in Jesus Christ, the universe's most important news, carried about in the clay pot that is you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I had the, uh, I had the privilege last week, last Sunday, I, uh, I spoke at the invitation of an old friend at the uh, Lone Oak First Baptist Church. Lone Oak is a, a community that is part of greater Paducah, Kentucky. So I was in Paducah, Kentucky last Sunday sharing. And as I, as I began my message, I shared with that congregation that a terrible thing had happened, that my sermon had five major points. And I shared with them that when that happens, at home, when that happens at McGregor, everybody just kind of groans and gives up hope of being on time for lunch. Holy cow, he's got five points. Well, this morning, I am blessed to announce to you that I have only two points. But I make you no promises whatsoever 
in terms of the time, but I think we can get through them. Treasure in jars of clay. Roman numeral one, the jar. The jar. Why? Among the various reasons. What are some reasons God has chosen to put the most valuable thing he offers the universe, his message of salvation, in such prosaic vessels, such plain old clay pots as me and you. Well, first it's to show his power. It's to show his power, and we show his power, interestingly enough, we show his power by persevering. Now, why does that matter? There's a, there's a lot of sort of, of mythology around Christianity in our culture. And one of the, one of the myths that's, that's sadly too prevalent is, is the myth of what is somehow or, or sometimes described, borrowing biblical terminology, but the term sort of the victorious Christian life. And the problem is not that term. The problem is what is too often meant when that term is used. That somehow having come to Christ, the hard part is over. Having come to Christ, if you do it right, you will, you will trample every obstacle. You'll just walk over anything that gets in your way. Nothing will ever get to mess with you. You will have good health, great wealth, and everything will go your way because after all, you're a child of God. And oh, how many times in the counseling room I've had to clean up the mess in the life of some Christian, brokenhearted, I must be doing it wrong. I prayed and prayed in faith and I got sicker and sicker. I, I, I worked and worked and gave and gave and the ends still don't seem to want to meet. And I followed every rule and the relationship still fell apart. Where is, where is my victorious Christian life? The victorious Christian life is described here not as putting a continual series of wins on the board, but as persevering through the difficulties. There's your victory, child of God. There's your victory. You clay pot. <laughs> well, we show his surpassing power when we are first afflicted in every way. Afflicted in every way. That word afflicted there in verse eight is a word that means pressed. It means pushed upon. It means squeezed. I've chosen for the outline, number one there, when we're squeezed. When we're, and we're squeezed. We live in a, in, a, in a setting that squeezes us. Most people I know are overscheduled. Most people I know are overstretched financially. Most people that I know are, 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 are taxed by the relationships they're, they're striving to maintain and the demands of, a, of a, a way of life that is 
constantly in touch and constantly communicating and constantly demanding. We're squeezed, but we're not crushed. You say, Brother Russell, how do you know we're not crushed? Well, in simple terms, I can see you. You've, you've, you've made it at least in as much as here you sit. You say, well, Russell, it, it sure feels like it's crushing me. Well, I can see you and it isn't. And I know it can be hard. And for many of you right now, today, right now, it's squeezing you. I get it. You will demonstrate the power of Christ in that you will not be crushed. We are squeezed. Second, when we are stumped. That word perplexed means perplexed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, not, I'm not terribly young. I make no big deal about my age. I'm 61 years old. And, and, and sometimes, hanging around in church life, as I have, sometimes I, I will hear someone who's, who's my age, plus or minus, talking about, talking about the songs we, we, uh, we sang in church when I was little. And I've been around church since well before I was saved. I was saved at the age of nine. But I was dropped off at the church nursery, nursery when my mom was on the way home from the hospital having given birth to me. I'm, I'm just absolutely convinced of that. So I've been, I've been churchified all my life. And I'll hear someone say, well, the, those, those, those older songs we just used to sing had such truth. And I'm not gonna disagree with that. But did you, did you hear the truth, the theology that you sang not that long ago, literally this morning? This lyric is such gold. I hope you will engrave this idea on your heart that you sang just a few minutes ago in a song written not that long ago. I don't know what he's doing, but I know what he's done. Woo, that is as truthy as anything I grew up in church singing. I don't know what he's doing. We hold to the providence of God. We hold to the truth that ultimately he is sovereign and he is the author of our circumstances. And yet often we find ourselves, at least I find myself in circumstances where candidly, I got no idea what he's up to. I don't even know what this is supposed to be about. But in those moments where I am tactically stuck, with not knowing what he's up to. I am on a foundation of strategically knowing what he has done. And he has been faithful, perplexed, but not driven to despair. When we're squeezed, when we're stumped. Third, when we're stalked. That word persecuted in verse nine means when we're hunted like prey. When we're stalked, I had fun with these S's, so I like to alliterate. When we're stalked, you know, it's not paranoia if they're really out to get you. <laughs> and unless you've been living under a rock, in terms of popularity with the culture, 
It's not such a great time to be a Bible-believing, Holy Spirit-led, Jesus-following, gospel-declaring child of God. They don't like us. And by the way, as an aside, if you're spending just a large chunk of your time making yourself aware of current events, I wish you'd stop. Because if you spend a large amount of your time doing awareness of current events, you could actually fall into the trap of believing that the, the silliness they're talking about on whatever is your favorite news source, that that's what's really going on and that's what really matters. It isn't and it doesn't. What's really going on and what really matters is the living God is drawing a people to himself because of what he did on the cross of Christ through the people he has already captured by his grace and he wants you out there telling people about Jesus, not obsessing about whatever yesterday's lead story was because yesterday's lead story isn't remotely as important as his ongoing mission. Woo. Don't you get lost in this world's noise-making as though some headline about who did what to whom is what matters most when you have people in your life who are gonna die and go to hell if they don't come to faith in Christ. Address that as the main thing, for it is. We're perplexed. We are, we are stalked and stumped and squeezed and even sometimes struck. Struck down, but not destroyed when we're struck. Uh, they can kill us. They can kill us. They learned that when they stoned Stephen. A bunch of unbelievers stood around a guy who loved Jesus and they threw rocks at him till he died. It's in the book of Acts. You can read about it. If somebody tells you that because you are a Christian and they grab a catchphrase from an Old Testament verse, jerk it out of context and try to tell you that no weapon formed against you will prosper, the history of the Christian church is full of people who've been shot, stabbed, beheaded, and stoned. Weapons formed against us can kill us, but they can't destroy us. You better understand the difference. We can get struck down. I'm not asking for it. I'm not out there looking for it. But I am aware that it's beyond the capacity of anything in earth or hell to destroy me. Because the one who is seated in heaven has made me his own. And this old clay pot, this thing, it's designed to be disposable. disposable. And one day will be disposed of. But that which it contains, a child of God, empowered, commissioned, assigned to bear his message, to execute his ministry, as are you, child of God. And by the way, if you don't know Jesus, 
Why not? Why would you go forward failing to love back the one who has loved so incredibly? You have no eternal alternative other than the undiminished judgment of a holy God. Why would you not turn from your sin and trust by faith in the gracious gift he has provided, forgiveness and new life? Not only to show his power, but to display his picture of sacrifice. His death is, verses 10 and 11 are very parallel. His death is, is a picture. We, we manifest his life by joining in identifying in a spirit, I put it on an outline as a bullet, to live out the idea that giving our lives away, letting his purpose be your purpose, letting his title to your life be, in practical terms, real title to your life, Give your life away as a means to a victorious end. He demonstrated it by his resurrection. Your life is not your own, child of God. You're bought with a price. You don't get to decide why you're here. You don't get to decide what's most important for you to be doing. You don't get to pick your purpose. He has assigned you your purpose. You're his. You bear his ministry and his message in the clay pot of your life to display his picture. Better see to fulfill his purpose. Verse 12. So death's at work in us. We are the, we are the bearers of a message that's foundation is the death of Christ. We, we, we tell that story. This might also mean that, that ongoing death, we are approaching our own physical deaths, but that's not mostly what it means. What it mostly means is the message of the sacrificial death of Christ is depicted by us in our sacrificial life for the sake of others. So death is at work in us for the sake of life in you, in others. You know, I, I think about this in a context even of our, of our measures in our, in our purpose statement. Because we think biblically, we, we pursue giving generously. Of money, sure, but far more than that. This paragraph is not about financial giving. We're coming in chapters eight and nine to I believe the New Testament's most pinnacle teaching on the matter of, of literal financial giving, and I can't wait to get there. Baptist pastors love to talk about giving. And Paul has given us the text. We can't wait to, to, to lead you there. We give generously. We, we love sacrificially. We carry death around in our bodies as a centerpiece of who we are because your priorities matter more than ours. The priorities of a lost world and getting the gospel to them matter more than any other priority in your life. And if you have not arranged your life to reflect that true, look for a new arrangement. Love sacrificially. And of course, all of that is what living missionally looks like. 
So Roman two, the journey, the journey. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, we believe, so we also speak. He quotes Psalm 116.10 there, a, 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 a one phrase out of Psalm 116.10. His point is, letter A on your outline, we are faithful, so we speak. We're faithful, we believe, so we speak. How can we not? How can we not? Child of God, you know the truth about the state of mankind. You know the truth about the holiness of God. You know the truth that judgment is on rushing. That every human being, one beat after they die from this earth, begins a life of either eternal blessing in the presence of God, having been forgiven on the basis of the work of Christ, or eternal judgment on their own sin. You know that truth if you're a child of God. How in the world can it be that we would believe but not speak? We believe, so we speak. You say, well, Brother Russell, I don't, I don't talk about it much. I'm not that articulate. Okay. Do a little thought exercise with me. Let's talk about your favorite sports franchise. Let's talk about the hobby you love most. Let's talk about the relationships in your life that mean the most to you. Dear friends, family. Let's see how inarticulate you are. I've said it before. I hold it to be true that our problem is not training. If you know that you are saved, you know how you were saved. Congratulations, you're trained. And yes, there's room for refinement, and yes, we could know more, but the issue is not training. The issue is passion. The issue is, is there a desire? You clay jar who hold this most valuable message, this most valuable ministry, this most valuable mission in the universe. You bear it, clay jar friend. Do you believe? If so, you should speak. We believe, so we speak. Letter B, we're informed, so we anticipate. Look at verse 14, knowing, not surmising, not hoping, not speculating, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. I love that. I know that the centerpiece of heaven is the resurrected and enthroned Lord Jesus Christ. I so get that. But with you, Anyone who, who knows me well will not be surprised to learn that my very, very favorite work of fiction, read it through more times than I could hope to recount, The Lord of the Rings by Professor Tolkien. Yes, Russell is a nerd. There, it's out there. In the very first chapter of that book, um, and I, you won't, I won't burden you with too much context, but there's a, there's a very, very old hobbit. And hobbits are sort of, think of them as English country gentlemen at half size. Um, there's a very old hobbit named Bilbo who's, who is, is about to leave 
the, the community where he has spent his whole life. He's going to go spend his last years somewhere else. And he's saying goodbye in a farewell speech at a party that he throws. And he makes the statement that all of his years are too short a time to live among such excellent and admirable hobbits, his friends and neighbors. Well, you know what? I'm with you, Bill Well. It's too short a time. It's too short a time. I know some of some of your stories, and I've told you some of mine, but there are, there are so many amazing stories I've not heard yet. If you've been married to your spouse down the long years, I want to hear how you met. I want to hear about the first couple of dates when one or both of you began to realize, whoo, something might be going on here. I love those stories. I want to I hear about the moment when you discovered what your, what your vocation was going to be where you figured out, where the light dawned, wow, this, this job is the job I'm supposed to be doing because I do it and I rock at it. I want to know what your first car was and how it felt the first time your folks said, go, you got a car, you got a license. So many, I want to hear the story of how you came to faith in Christ. I know what God did. God did what he does. I want to know what was going on in your life when he did it. But you know what's going to happen? I'm going to run out of time. I'm not going to have time to hear it or to tell it. Not as often as I want to. And then I'm not going to run out of time. Because I want to be in heaven with Jesus but I want to be in heaven with you. And I want to be able to say, look, I got a couple of years if you do. Tell me the story. Tell me the story in real time as it unfolded. Because I got a couple I want to share with you as well. And let's just, let's just bask in the victory that Jesus has won for us and the stories he wrote in our lives while we were on earth. We know, therefore we anticipate. And then finally, we are missional to the glory of God. The number one priority of what God is always doing at all times and in all places is seeking glory for himself. If you want to know the answer to why, something's going on right now and you want the answer to why, I may not be able to tell you in the immediate, but I can tell you in the broad. I'll tell you why. God is seeking glory for himself. I stubbed my toe walking to the bathroom last night. You want to know why? Because I didn't cuss this time. God is seeking glory for himself because I'm learning to restrain my mouth even when I'm in my bedroom at 2 a.m. Stubbed my toe. The glory of God. And the good of his people. Look at verse 15. We're missional for the glory of God. It is for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. 
my unbelieving friend, come to Jesus now. Why would you delay? Why would you live at risk of judgment? Why would you live at, as an as a undervalued empty pot? Why not turn from your sin, trust him by faith? We'll be here to talk about that after the service if you'd like to talk about it. But child of God, this passage is written most directly to children of God. You bear the most important mission, ministry, and message in the disposable clay pot of your life. Bear it well. Well.